Support for this NPR podcast comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether that's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. It's All Songs Considered. I'm Bob Boylan, and today, my bloody interview. A complex and fascinating conversation with Kevin Shields of My Bloody Valentine. It's about the latest version of the legendary 1991 album Loveless, and a lot more. We talk about the band making new music, and everything you likely didn't know about the world of analog and digital, and why Kevin Shields cares so much. If you have the vinyl album of Loveless, you probably think, oh, I have the analog version. Well, here's some news. You don't. And that's confusing. For one, the nice segues on Loveless, those seamless song-to-song transitions, were all done on a computer. Also, in order to press a record, the pressing plant turns the analog tapes into a digital file. So Kevin Shields went on what he thought would be a brief mission, to make an all-analog version of Loveless. And that took years, and an awful lot of money. And now, that final is out, and the tale of the tape is what much of this conversation is about. Kevin and I spoke for almost 90 minutes. I was in D.C., he was in a studio in Ireland. We get into the weeds about tech about mastering an album, which is the technical final tweaking done before a record is pressed. But stick with it. It was an eye and an ear opening conversation. And I learned a lot about the process of making a record and about a guy who cares so much about what he does, at times, to a fault. Back in the 80s and 90s, I, I didn't see digital as a, a bad thing mm-hmm. because I saw I, I could hear all the good things that, that digital would have had to offer, basically, which is a very... Um, accurate representation of the of the waveform and the and the and the frequency response of the record where in, in the analog domain every time you do anything it changes you mean so if you copy it it gets a little it's duller changed it, it can get duller or, or yes yeah it can get duller or it certainly changes it gets more distorted it, it'll be a little different and every time you put it through a desk or use a different tape machine or everything is a variable and in the digital world those variables are cut down quite a lot and so that was all seen as a good thing because it was more accurate and close to what you were trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, back in the 80s and 90s, digital was just good. It was no negatives. And then eventually people started to go, I don't really like the sound of this, you know. And, and, and then when they go back to analog, they go, oh, my God, it sounds so much nicer. And that's where the whole analog concept started to come, become an issue. When you got your records back, back in those mm. days, yeah. did you say, oh, you know, what did I do, or how could I make it sound more like what I remembered, or did you feel pretty good about it? Back in those days, there was a concept of the idea of some, something sounding like a record. That was a, a term that, <laughs> right. that, that that's disappeared from general vocabulary. But back in the 80s, and definitely in the 80s and 70s, I know people used to say, make it sound like a record, or it sounds like a record. Mm-hmm. So you would kind of expect, in the end, regardless of what your tapes sound like, you expect it to change. You expect it to become this hmm. thing that sounds like a record, whatever that was. And for all I knew, that was actually digital sound because you know most of the records I bought was from the late 70s onwards. So 
half of them could have been digitized for all I know. Um, and that maybe that was for a lot of people what a record sounds like, you know. Actually, there's an interesting test that somebody did about 10 or 15 years ago, and they got a bunch of engineers, classical musicians, and some general public, and they basically did a test where they had um, an analog signal, a, a digital signal, and um, the actual uh, recorded analog signal, digital signal, and the, the music coming live from the studio. Mm-hmm. And they, But nobody knew whether it was digital, analog, or, or live. The interesting thing that mo- out of the test was most of the classical musicians preferred the um, live sound, um, and most of the producers and engineers preferred the digital signal <laughs> in I a blind that. test. I love that. Yeah, so what it's all about is what you think something should be. You know, whatever that happens to be, if you're used to listening to something, you think, well, that's what it is. And then when you hear something a bit like it, then it sounds good. We did a test, uh, just that simple test of uh, bit rate, you know, highest quality, mediocre quality, gave mm. people the test and said, oh, can you tell a difference? And, and the truth mm. was almost no one. I mean, hardly anyone could tell the difference, which is... Yeah. And actually thinking, I mean, it depends how you do it. If you work... It, where, where it's really interesting is, is it, it's it's very much a bit like air. Where, whereas if you're used to breathing nice air, you only notice bad air when you when you go into a city. Mm-hmm. But if you're in the city and you go out, you might not notice it so much. But you really notice it when you go into a city when you're not used to it. What if and somebody who you respect says this sounds better, <laughs> but it's the same thing? <laughs> would would you then be biased to? No, because this is a thing. Like I know for a fact from doing tons of tests and things that if someone put a cut into my head and my life depended on getting it right between the digital signal, the analog signal, or whatever, there is a chance that I wouldn't make it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and and there's a reason for that, and that's and, it, and it's because I believe anyway we don't perceive sound as something that we from one moment to the next you can easily discern what the quality is. Mm-hmm. But if you, what well, I was like with the air analogy, if you're listening to the analog sound for a prolonged period of time, like a couple of hours, and then you suddenly switch to a digital version of the sound, that's when the, the effect can kick in hugely. Or if you spend a long time listening to something analog and then you listen to, start listening to it digitally, then again, the effect mm. is really profound. But if you just do a, a quick A-B test, it can be, it depends, you know, it just depends on how you're hearing it. You know, you could you could have it like just one, like a half decibel quieter or louder, and that might make people prefer one or the other. Do you know right. what I mean? Yep. More than, but as I said, it's More if you're listening to the music, like for example, if you're listening to 24-bit 96K, which is like high resolution digital, and you're doing that for a few hours, and then you suddenly switch to 16-bit 44, you do hear quite a, a reduction in the, in the kind of quality of the sound. And same with 16-bit when you switch to MP3, but only if, if it's become your world for a while. Interesting. But if you just A-B it, you know, just cold, like walk into a room and say, okay, here, you go, one, two, three, there you go, which one is which? There's so many other factors involved that can make people prefer something. So many. Some, it's un- unbelievable, actually. <laughs> for example, like a guitar band, for ex- give you, an ex- like a guitar, you can take a band, like um, a punk band or whatever, you know, something aggressive. Half the time on an MP3, that'll sound a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more in your face, hmm. because it's so squashed and limited, and that it's more of that effect. If you had the choice to listen to full time the highest quality analog you can get, mm. consumer wise, okay, let's mm. just not, and then listen to the highest quality 
digital consumer again. Which would you want? Oh, the analog, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. so that here, then, I assume, is the impetus to make what you've now made, yeah? Yeah. Oh, but the whole thing kind of started for me back when I was doing the MBV record. Right. And I had these half-finished recordings from 96, 97. I initially, I dumped everything into Pro Tools. I copied everything onto tape, but I also, I also I'll be practical and normal like everyone else, and I'll just make the record in Pro Tools. And I was finding it really difficult, and I was finding it very difficult to record guitars and stuff, and I didn't know why. And, and then I When you say just, difficult, meaning the sound that you got, you weren't I was finding it really hard to overdub stuff onto stuff I had done before, because before I, I don't worked purely in the analog domain. And when I was trying to record overdubs, you know, on top of these guitars I'd done in 96, say, I was finding it really hard for it to merge. I couldn't seem to make the sound fit. Um, so I just decided to try it, just work on the tape, and immediately it was working. Hmm. You know, so that's that's when I started to get this thing. And then we, we created a setup in the studio where we had the 24-track tra- tape running, but we also had the um, a 20... Well, actually, it was actually 24-bit 192, um, Pro Tools running, which is a oh, super high quality. Yeah, it was. It's like as high as you can get at the moment, anyway, for recording. So we we would always have the computer running it parallel to the tape machine because how I would I would work would be I would run the computer to to work out ideas and stuff, and then I would just press a button and everything would swap to analog, uh-huh. and then I record the analog, and that it just saved you know messing around with the tape too much. It meant everything was synced up, but we weren't having to you know, run the tape all the time. That's when the whole thing really started kicking in because I was spending hours listening to the digital and then swapping to the analog and then working on the analog for a few hours and then swapping back to the digital. That's when I became super aware of the huge effect of, of the, you know, when you hear 24 tracks of, of digital sound all suddenly switching to 24 tracks of analog sound, it's really quite profound, the effect. There's the very often used warmer, I mean, the many words that people use over and over again, but... Yeah. You, you've dug deep into this world, and if we just talk about your own music, when you hear that difference and you just had that experience, what words would you use to describe the difference? Kind of three-dimensionality, where somehow it was, it was more possible to literally go into a kind of inside, in a way, that went with the digital version, even though I would love this, for example, I, it, that to me was the, that was the version, if you know what I mean. That was the, that's as accurate as I could make it. Of what I was trying to achieve, what I didn't know back then, I didn't know about converters because it wasn't again very much in people's consciousness. Converters you know, for those who don't know, are taking the analog signal, the guitar amp or whatever it might be, with a microphone, turning it or, into bits of di- yeah. digitizing it so that the computer would understand it. I'm sorry. Yeah. So back in the '90s, everybody was using the Sony DAT digital audio tape yeah. things, that recorders, and just using the converters that they had you know, that were in, in the machine. And they weren't and would, so high quality. They were No, yeah. no. Not, when you compare it to what's around now, even in the most cheap kind of stuff that you'd buy for like $30, do you know what I mean, or whatever, <laughs> it's literally, literally sounds like crap, you know. So even though the balance of the sound was, was what I wanted, the overall tonality had this sound, which was essentially the sound of the converters of the time. That's why when I did the remastering in 2012, when it came out in 2012, that was using much higher quality converters. But for really interesting reasons, it wasn't super apparent to people, the difference. Um, and that's for 
I don't know if I should go into it. Like it's a bit long-winded, but um, <laughs> I'm but, sort of ready for it. I don't know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we can but, take but it you, out, but go for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, basically, all right. Another weird quirk of the late '80s up to the mid '90s was there was actually no such thing as digital limiting, which is one of the key things that people use nowadays to sort of get maximum level everywhere in the digital domain. When you were making a master onto a digital tape, you wouldn't have a limiter. There wouldn't be no such thing as digital limiting. So to save your recording, protected from going over and going in and distorting and go, basically digital distortion back then was just like a broken noise. It wasn't like, you know, it wouldn't just kind of crunch. It would just be like, it would get over. It would be like right. a weird noise. And do people think distortion is a good thing and it, it is for guitar amplifiers, but it's not yeah. when it turns to... This staticky, yeah. awful sound. It's not. Yeah. It's not digital distortion. Is not is not good. So that's what no. no. Well, yeah, it's another story, but um, <laughs> it can be good. But it's, but but the point was back then anyway. It, to simplify it all, we would leave a lot of headroom. Okay, so instead of recording nowadays, everyone records within a couple of dBs of 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 the highest level. Okay, and back then people would leave about a ten or fifteen or even twenty dB headroom like gap between the average level of music and then the and then the highest level you could possibly record and th that would be done for safety reasons so you wouldn't blow over that zero limit yeah. and make a distorted yeah. sound in digital yeah the interesting thing was is that 16-bit only works at the highest level so when you're at the highest few decibels of your potential recording level that's when it's actually working at the full bit rate oh, that's and the bit rate that everyone was recording at was even lower than 16-bit because they would be recording, and not only that, but a really weird phenomenon would happen where the transient information below about 5 or 10 dB would start to soften or disappear in the digital domain. Explain transient. Transient is basically when you, say, if you hit a bottle, like with a, with a spoon, the sound is that don't noise, but there's a huge spike, and the bit that hurts your ear yeah. is the transient, which is this massive, massive spike that's incredibly fast, like a... It just looks like a giant spike, and then it goes back down to the rest of the sound. And most of the sound you hear is is not that spike. It, it, you feel the spike. You kind of so every sound has a, like anything with a, a bit of attack has a has a strong transient, like a snare drum, or it's a huge spike. So anyway, that transient information was somehow not recorded properly. That's the best way to put it. So um, for people who know 808 bass drums, there's a certain kind of sound to the, to the transient and that would if you recorded that the way most people recorded digital back then that transient would actually disappear wow. would, and so it was easier to record 808 bass drums onto tape and then put them into a sampler for example because then the transient would have been squashed and then contained somehow not just disappearing so anyway so, so the sound of loveless that was mastered digitally back in 91 had a certain lack of transient information as a way of putting it that that I actually liked at the time because I was basically, I had also had the half-inch tapes back then, and I preferred the sound of the DAP, that sound, whatever it made, to anything else. That to me was the most close to what I was trying to achieve and what I was mixing in the studio. Um, so you're saying the digital audio tape you liked yeah. more than than the, than the, the half-inch tape, the analog half-inch tape, yeah, and that was for two weird reasons. One was because the transient information was being subtly dulled on the on the digital tape, which is counterintuitive, but it was happening. And the analog tape machine that we were using to play back, back then, just wasn't that good. 
because back when I when I got all the analog tapes together back in 2006 and played them, they sounded so much different than what I remembered and so much more powerful. So it was just the tape machine that we were using at the time. It was an Atari tape machine. It didn't sound good. And when we played them, played them on Ampex tape machines, it sounded amazing. So it wasn't so anyway, a recording, it was a playback. But yeah. yeah, this is the playback. But sometimes if you're, if you're in the analog domain, if you play it back on a machine that just doesn't have nice electronics, it's going to sound horrible. Uh-huh. It'll sound all soft and weak, flabby and, you know, lacking all energy and stuff. So there was many, many reasons that were technically people don't even get into nowadays. It's, it's, it's not even an issue nowadays that, that made things sound the way they sound. And ironically, some of those things made the digital sound actually sound softer than the analog version, which is kind of weird. Uh-huh. So basically, when you were saying about analog being warmer and softer and digital being harder and sharper and colder, actually, it wasn't like that. You know, the digital sounded fuller and warmer. Hmm. That's, that's what's weird. That is strange. So when you went about wanting to make an analog, full analog version, yeah. let, let's get there. So it seems like a pretty simple thing. You go and you grab your tapes and yeah. <laughs> and you find a cutting machine that will cut yeah. it using analog tapes. But you didn't, you actually, in the process of putting the record together and making the beautiful transitions between song to song, you didn't do that on tape. Mm. You did that digitally. So now you're left then, with, yeah. you went yeah. back to make this analog all record, and now you realize you had all these crossfades from song to song that was in the digital world. Yeah. And you're faced with how to heck to make that happen analog. Yeah, that, that took a long time. And <laughs> do you remember that moment when you realized that? <laughs> it, was, it was more like, we can just try it. You know, we can just try and do it. It seemed possible, because some of it was just a simple case of taking stuff and, and literally just um, in the analog domain crossfading with literally I, I copied what happened on but do it with faders you know and, and sort so of physically two tape machines yeah one with one we, song we, one with the other you hit play yeah we yeah. used to create it we had three ampex tape machines to, to do it and basically um so we had to have three two track half inch machines to create these things yeah that doesn't sound so hard so no <laughs> what happened it, it, <laughs> What was mainly nearly impossible was the longer fades were, were doable. That was just a lot of trial and error. It was, you know, it would take a while, but it was just... It, what was kind of nearly impossible was the short ones because it's physically, humanly impossible to sort of... It's hard to explain, but it was like... They're so short that they're hard to do as a crossfade, but it doesn't, it just doesn't sound right. It sounds like it, was, it wasn't working. And, but way too long to do with the normal tape editing techniques. So let's um, get real tangible here. I've got in front of me uh, a record player. I have a digital file of the CD if you want. I can do an yeah. A and B. Yeah. And then explain how you did this, what you were trying to match maybe, and then what, how, how you did it. The things that shouldn't be hard but were really hard would be just like something going from just before I only said, Is this the place you're talking about? I'll go back to it in a second. It's coming up. It's come. It's after this. It's it, when it goes from this to the next track, basically. Now you think something like that sounds like nothing, you know? It's but to make it sound the same, it's actually it's actually a it's about it's a foot long edit. So meaning that. <clears throat> It, it, from one tape it, machine to the other, you would 
we'd have to, but the edit has to be ha, ha, we, it was basically what we did is we made these edits but what, what took all the time was figuring out a way to create these edits that sounded like the original digital um, fades or, or, or very short fades between, the, between certain things but when you really listen to them you can't just cut between one song and the other the way you would normally with analogue because it comes it too abrupt or something, does it? Yeah, it sounded hor It didn't sound the same. It just sounded really different. So we found that to to make them sound like the way we did it in the digital domain, that the actual the edits themselves had to be around a foot long. And when you're doing a foot long tape edit, the other thing that we found was that in the digital domain, the left and the right they change at the same time. Where normally with analog tape, when you cut it, you cut from one side to the other. So if you were listening to that on headphones, it would, go, it would sound wrong as well. It would go left, right. Because we're talking about taking, people can imagine it's taking a, piece, a reel of tape mm. and you're splicing it. But you can't just splice yeah. it right a straight up and down 90 degree angle to make yeah. a crossfade between two different pieces of tape. You're cutting it at an angle angle on a tape itself. I'm sorry if I'm saying this because mm. obviously mm. you know all this, but on a tape itself, the top half might be the left channel, and do I have that right? And the bottom yeah, exactly. half is, is the right channel. So if yeah, you so make an angular splice, your left and right, what you're explaining, you it would basically in your ear, you go re one side to the yeah, other exactly. side. Right? Yeah, so, so exactly. Yeah. So how do you overcome that? What'd you do? We just that's that's what took all the time is basically creating these weird triangular edits. So it looks like on one piece of tape looks like it just goes into a a very high, long spike and the other side looks like it's sort of two spikes, you know what I mean, if you can imagine. So that, that the left and the right look the same mm -hmm. and the middle just it f it fades it fades out in the middle and then the left and right come in at the same time. <laughs> and that, that was a really hard bit because as you can imagine a foot long version of that, it goes to a very, very thin, tiny piece of tape. Yeah. It took a lot of trial and error to do it because it doesn't want to happen like that. You know, it's just, you know. And um, our engineer Andy Savers, he spent months, you know, you know, working on a way of doing it where it, it sounded good and it stuck together. You know, it didn't all fall apart as well because it looks looks. Because you've got lots of different pieces of splicing tape on the tape. Is that what yeah, you're it was like even figuring out a way to stick it together. You know, it's it doesn't. I don't know if I'm describing it correctly, but say even just take a mobile phone and you just put put a V into it, but for the top two corners and you go to the middle where the where the button is, you know, right. that V thing. But imagine that a foot long on a very thin half-inch piece of tape. It's extremely fragile, you know. And I assume you're making a copy of the tape and that's what you're cutting and you're not cutting the original, correct? We can't, no. We had to cut through all the edits for copies, yeah. That was the other thing. The Loveless that I, I know and, and the one that, one of the big problems I had with the 2012 version was that I could hear all these transients that weren't in the original. And no one seemed to notice that much, but for me it was quite a little perturbing. And I sort of solved that this time by, by basically copying it. Because the original one that everyone knows is a, is a copy. It's basically one and then another. The original masters for Loveless aren't the mixes from the 24 track. They're, they're mixes and then the mixes were reprocessed. I see. Um, you know, basically mastered, for want of a better word. From that we loaded those masters into the into the AMS audio file and did all the editing. That's how we did it. And there was no mastering after that, basically. There was no mastering in the mastering studios or anything. All the mastering was done in the, in the recording studio because of a bit like when they did Sgt. Pepper, they also did, that was one of the things they put on the box, no 
don't touch the don't mess with the EQ. <laughs> don't do anything. Right. Just cut it exactly as it is. Because some things have to be that way if they have to flow in a certain way. You can't stop. You can't get some guy adding anything. It just has to be exactly the way it was. So, anyway. Can I play just a little bit of the uh, the album that I have here on a turntable mm. and that the exact spot again? Mm. Yeah. probably know exactly how many seconds I have to go before it hits that spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's coming here. felt pretty satisfying when you Andy finally nailed that yeah yeah I mean it's all over the record it's basically it that was a characteristic kind of issue that, that we had it was only about I think there was only two or three where I, had, where I did it manually and everything else was just was figuring out how to do these they're very fast you know but they're very big in the analog domain you know but they were too fast for to do it with hands you think you do this stuff for you, or do you do it for your fans? Do you have a sense of... It was just to, basically, I, as I said, when I became very conscious of, of what was good about the analog sound, and when I realized that it, the record sounded really good coming off a good tape machine, I was just determined someday to do it. You know, I was like, it'd be insane not to, you know, just to only live it, let it live in a digital version, you know, when it, when it sounds pretty good in the analog domain. And we're not and, getting any younger, so our ears... Yeah, I always thought when I have an opportunity, I'm going to do it. And then that, the opportunity was these past few years. Do you think that it takes away from your creative time when you could be doing something? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's something I'm never going to, I'm never going to, well, I learned a lot. We had a lot of trial and error. I mean, the whole process of trying to cut it as well. Isn't anything wasn't so hard, but Loveless was a nightmare. <laughs> it didn't want to be cut, basically. And as it stands right now, if I had to cut it again, there's really nowhere in the UK I can go back except for where I did cut it, which was Alchemy, because we we did, we got our best cut already. There's no point like on going back there until we they're going to get some new equipment. And we're going to try it again, maybe sometime. I'm going to do like a 45 version. Meaning that because the faster the speed runs on a record, the better it sounds. The better, we'll, we'll just better quality, yeah. Better. But more that I'm gonna, sp I'll split it up so it's not all squashed. But I, I need to get the kind of definitive version out. So you're also describing the fact that it might be a four, a two disc set yeah, with four yeah. sides, which means yeah. you have more space in the grooves, which means you get more. It's just to get the quality up, you know. Yeah. It's because it was as good as I could get it and it's it's there's a lot of compromises because you can go quiet to the point of there's no distortion but then you have the problem of you're well within the noise floor of all pops and ticks right. and noises and stuff so you're trying to get above all that noise floor but not get to the point where you're sacrificing the stuff too much with distortion this but a bit of distortion is not so bad you know compared to, to having lots of noise you know like i love sound and and dig into it but every every february my friends and i we make an album that starts february 1st it ends february 28th and it's over and we go and we move on and we make you know next year we'll make another one and we'll make another mm -hmm. one. we've done cool. that for 11 12 years cool. and it is fun and i just like i love 
I've, I used, when I first started playing music, I worked on the Synclavier, which was the, one of the early digital mm. synthesizers and stuff. Mm. And I would spend hours and hours and hours and hours and working on just a single sound until mm. I got that sound just as I liked it. Mm-hmm. And and that was a nice world to live in. But then I also discovered that it was when I had a kid and stuff and had less time mm. that I would take three hours once a week and just make something because I had to yeah. just make something. And they're both and, like and in super, the balance, right? Yeah, and the, <laughs> but you've probably found that 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 just doing it is 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 not worse at all. That's right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I, true. And that's I just true. wonder for you, you keep you revisit revisit spend time on something that is brilliant and i just think about the creative time to make new and explore the world that is just unseen to you and unheard to mm-hmm. you well yeah that's i mean basically the sacrifice you're making yeah yeah and, and it wasn't supposed to take that long you know <laughs> it, it wasn't supposed to be that hard but but you don't and, see uh, the, the version that like now it's a 45 and it's on foresight. You don't see that as the constant rabbit hole that's taking you away from making and exploring a world you don't even know exists, right? Yeah, I agree. Uh, if, I, if, I was to, if I was to only do that, but what's actually happening, um, when, I'm gonna, if I, when I do that, it won't take that much time in the sense that it, it'll just be a case of cutting it as a well it's hard, Fingers hard to explain crossed, but yeah well yeah no yeah, basically it be, right it should we've done it so many times that we kind of ironed out all the things not to do now mm-hmm. but in the meantime yeah. in the meantime anyway yes. this this thing broke us in a way it kind of it, it took it used all of, all our money up and put us in a very not a good place and when we should have been recording this album we were i was constantly stopping to deal with all basically go back into this whole thing and it did lead to kind of a promise that that's over for quite a long time you know that that kind of process that kind of go into the rabbit hole kind of thing I'll, I'll, where I'll, I'll i'll go until it's done sometimes i I'll, i can i'll do that in my life but not not for a good few years now mm-hmm. i won't be doing it for the next three or four years because as you kind of implying or saying there's a lot of music that is getting well, I'm not, it's never going to happen you yeah. know and uh, unless you just do it and that feeling never really felt very powerful to me up, up until the past couple of years when i could really suddenly feel like god this is ne- nearly never ending especially in the cutting process when i with the sense of helplessness when we weren't really in control anymore it was just like try and make this work and then it doesn't work and then try it again try another place and and i was like i never want to be in that place again um because it is not it's not a creative place you know it's it's purely technical and it's and not frustrating a good yeah it's it is frustrating but and rewarding when it's done but good lord <laughs> i mean uh, yeah i mean uh, it's i mean i could i could i could literally go on for days about the, the problems and issues about it with the cutting room with the whole cutting process yeah. and records and there's so so many issues but and it's mm-hmm. but the bottom line is when you play the record and you play it at a reasonable volume and you just get into it as a unique it experience is. that you don't, you don't get when you just hear the CD. So uh, that's why it was worth it. I did the AB with the record and the CD and where I listened to the whole album, then listened to the whole CD, and oh, back to the cool. whole album. And it was, it's beautiful. I'm thankful you did it on one hand. I wouldn't mind hearing three other albums of music I don't know of you mm-hmm. <laughs> have happened too, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I am grateful for it. We're going to take a minute break. And when we return why your turntable is faulty. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from ABC. Presenting American Idol, the singing competition that started it all, has a new home on ABC. And the journey to find the next great American singing sensation is about to begin. Superstar judges Luke Bryan, Katy Perry, and Lionel Richie join host Ryan Seacrest in the search to find your next American Idol. Premieres Sunday, March 11th at 8, 7 central on America's network, ABC. Support also comes from the new Surface Pro from Microsoft. It's a laptop built for speed with a battery life that lasts all day, so you can play up to 13.5 hours of video without needing to charge. It's light enough to go anywhere you want, with options for a removable keyboard in lots of new colors. Its touchscreen display responds to your fingertips with great resolution, too. And it also works with your iPhone. The new Surface Pro is the lightest, most powerful Surface Pro ever. I'm Bob Boylan. I'm talking with Kevin Shields of My Bloody Valentine. We pick up the interview talking about turntables and their imperfections and his preference for tangential turntable arms, those weird straight-looking tone arms. And we also talk about the brand-new vinyl reissue of Loveless, where there's a bit of a surprise. On Loveless, there's some things that I haven't spoken about that I'm wait- I'm still waiting for people to... Um digest before I do, if you know what I mean, because I'm, I'm quite enjoying people hearing it with very open ears and an open mind, because some people know I have remixed some stuff, so, but no one knows what, and so that's kind of cool. So you're waiting for me to ask you that question? Yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> but I haven't told anyone, so, but, um, tell me, well, basically, um, well, yeah. in a nutshell, Wait. right, yeah. It's really just, it's just Soon is completely different. It's actually very different than the other version. But the thing about Soon is that there's actually no definitive version of Soon. So it's a whole story in itself, in the sense that when we first recorded Soon, the actual definitive version of Soon is on the 12-inch glider EP. Uh-huh. That's, that's, that's the version that we created. And that's the proper version. And when you say the proper version, it's because what happened in the next... Iteration when it loveless happened, and then and that's hence when when I refer to doing digital stuff on loveless, there was things like what soon where I actually in a digital domain took the original mix that was on the glider EP and I actually added guitar because the tonality of loveless was much brighter, and when when I EQ'd the original soon to fit the tonality of, of the rest of the record so it flowed correctly, it didn't sound good. And I realized that I would have to remix it or something. And I, so at first we tried to remix it and it didn't work. And um, we didn't know why it wouldn't work, but it just didn't work. And then we had the seemingly bright idea of saying, well, why don't I just add guitar to it, the original mix, and then that way I can add the EQ to it and make it brighter, but it won't, it'll still sound good. And it did, we did, we achieved it. And that, that was the version I love this. But, there were some technical faults with that that not many people noticed that drove me crazy. So in 2012, the record that came out in 2012, the remastered version of Loveless has a different version of Soon with, with a, a new guitar added. With the, it just sounds different. And it's, I think it's better. Um, so that's three. And then this analog version has the fourth one, which is, which is a remix, basically, with, with some parts I hated gone. So if I just, like, right now I have a little logic file up here that has an A and B. Okay, so just so you know, what, what I'm playing here is the, um, 
is it this morning uh, I took the record, the new record, yeah. and this is that track. Yeah. Right? And then underneath it, as close as I could to sync it, uh, I'm gonna solo it and then unsolo the other one. And this is the um, CD version that came out God knows when, right? Yeah. So can we... And even then, I have to add, <laughs> very importantly, yeah. that that just depends on on the on how you recorded the analog one in, on the equipment you used, and the converters. Yeah, so that that's absolutely the, the, understood. So I, so I, I have, a, a, have a nice, good preamplifier. I did 24-bit. I did the best I could, let's just say, in, in, yeah, a, in, in a reasonable amount of expense. Right. So <laughs> if I go back and forth, is there a place in the song I should do it? And could you no. could we do that? Go back and forth, and you tell if me you what's different. We can, yeah. Okay. I mean, all right. So right now, this is the uh, oh, let's see. this is the CD. Be an okay time to go to the other one, or what should I do? Sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, so I'm gonna now, now I'm going to the LP that's just been released. Well, it sounds a lot duller, it really does. I'm yeah. surprised by that. Yeah, that's that's because you're that's yeah, is that nothing to do with you, but everything to do with what my process, or uh, that's to do with. Uh, th what depends? What kind of arm do you have? Uh, I, I don't know. What, uh, Basically, all record players when I mean, they is go it into an anti-skating issue. No, no, no. Okay, uh, uh, go through. All it is is um, a, tr a chance. Basically, my my, my record. All my record players don't have one either, right? But um, basically, when you play a record, the only part on a record where it actually actually has the correct frequency response is somewhere in the first, with around the third or track or so. Um, when you get to the past, the, when you get past the middle of the record, depending on how your arm is set up, um, records get more and more distorted and dull. Basically, the top end starts going, um, and depends on your needle and your whole setup. Basically, and, and that's because the, the tendency to pull in makes it not sit properly in the groove. Is that yeah? Yeah. Basically, when you cut a record, it's cut it at exactly at a ninety degree angle. Um, and it's 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 done trans in that way where it's, it stays exactly the same. It kind of cuts across the record. It do, the arc, the arm doesn't arc across it. It's in exactly the same. The needle is in exactly the same spot, exact same angle mm -hmm. from the beginning of the record to the end. When you play a record on a record player, exact angle is only for one song or so. <laughs> and so you've worked your tail off to make this thing that will always be imperfect by its nature. Well, again, it depends on your record player because if you play it no, on ninety-nine percent of the population, it's all the analog world is literally. If you have seven, seven record players and you load the record in with seven record players, it's going to have seven different sounds. <laughs> you know, but everyone knows their own record player, so they it's yeah, you know what I mean. Is. It's but like a mixer when they have got their speakers or their you know they they know their sounds, so it doesn't really matter. You know, what speakers do you mostly play your music through at home? I've got these ATCs, they're called 45As. They're kind of active, kind of um, midfield, near field type things. And then I've, I use um, B&Ws, mm -hmm. I think the, eight, the small ones, the 805s or 4s, they're, they're the small ones, bookshelf ones. 
Abbey Road uses them. Huh. When we were mastering at Abbey Road, when we worked at Abbey Road, they were using them. For someone who's played such loud music for so long, how do you feel you're... We, we talked a little about this, but your hearing... Oh, my hearing is definitely affected. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that affects what you put out into the world. It does, but, you know, it's relative because, like, hearing is very much a mental process as much as a physical process. So, so you make up for it, sort of? You know what should be there? Partly, but partly you learn to listen in different ways. Uh-huh. For example, even people with quite bad hearing have got a certain threshold or certain there's a certain volume where they can hear things quite well. Then, for example, you learn to work with certain equipment that's very uncolored, like one of these headphones I use, you know, these, um, what are they called, the 800 something, I forget what they're called now, but they're very flat, you know, and but they're a little bit open and more, I guess they got a high-end kind of bias, for want of a better word. Those are Sennheisers? Yeah, I think the it's H- the Sennheiser set. Yeah, them, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I also use the Audi's LCD3s, which huh. sound-wise, they're, they were kind of, everyone was raving about them for a while, and I got them because I, I, I was listening to a lot of headphones, and there was something very, very real about the sound. For my hearing, they're a little bit kind of dull. I guess that's what kicks in, you know, when I know my hearing isn't as good as it was, basically I start picking the equipment and be more careful about listening levels and stuff like that. I mean, practically speaking, I, I was misquoted in an interview saying I hear things that other people don't hear, but what I was actually saying was when I'm working in the studio or mastering or anywhere else, I thought I still tend to be the one who picks up on problems first mm-hmm. or I pick up on distortions or things like that. But that's not necessarily a component of good hearing from a technical perspective. It's right. it's just the way I hear sound. So well, it's listening versus hearing, isn't it? Yeah, I actually, read a, this is something you could check out sometime. But apparently, back back in the days of there was a, there was a phenomenon called listeners, but you know in the World War One days particularly, and people um, had a special ability to really they would listen listen out for 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 stuff. You know what I mean? To find you know just find little morse code shit and noise and you know they were there and that, that's what their job was they were listeners and one of the best listeners in history was somebody who actually had who was actually technically deaf wow. and um because they were proven in the field as in as opposed to someone's opinion it was just like in in their job they were the best a bit like one of the best opera singers he was also quite deaf and i had myself once heard a, experience a weird phenomenon when um I damaged my left ear quite badly. Doing, I was actually mixing Dinosaur Junior with a friend, and we just we were experimenting with how loud we could get it, and we got it really loud, and I damaged my ear. And um, it was a period for about a month because it wasn't um, inner ear damage than or the normal. I don't know what I did. I, I somehow damaged my middle ear. I, I felt really quite deaf. You know, when I, when I put my finger in my right ear, I couldn't I couldn't really hear anything out of my left ear. So I couldn't hear a radio when I was in a cab or something like that. It would just disappear. My alarm system went off, and I had known the sound of the alarm system, but with you mean with like my a fire, like a smoke home, home alarm system. No, just my home alarm system. I had my studio in my house, and I had a alarm, big alarm system gotcha. and stuff, and in London back in those days, and and um, it went off, and and I was running around trying to turn it off, but it, while in the process, I was like, wow, I can really hear exactly how that alarm sound is put together. You know, because normally it's so loud and so just sounds like an alarm. But when my when I was half deaf, I could actually hear the bits, all the parts that that they use to create the sound. Oh, that's crazy. Um, 
Anyway, I just remembered that, you know, and I became conscious that you, even though I wasn't hearing well, I was, I was still hearing stuff, a lot of stuff. Like it was just changing that the balance of what I was focusing on. Um, but then, luckily enough, that the hearing came back because it was more middle ear damage than inner ear damage. So um, it came back after a few months. So I was lucky that time. But it did make me very conscious that that sound is very relative, you know. And I think where deafness kicks in in a big way is when you, as you lose your hearing, when you start to not listen anymore, you start to just sort of close in, then the, all the neural pathways or whatever pathways in your brain that are part of the whole lis- hearing process, because hearing isn't a passive thing, it's a sort of active process with our brain involved. When you stop listening, then, then you go deaf, you know, then you stop really hearing. And um, there was a whole theory about it once, engineers were talking about it in a magazine called Mix in America, and they were talking about um, why it's okay for as an engineer starts to lose their hearing, why it's not such a bad thing for them to sort of use brighter and brighter monitoring because at least they're still focusing on those frequencies Mm. and their their brain's still working and then it's somehow it works, you know, somehow. I I feel very conscious of having hearing damage because I do, but I still practically, I'm I'm the one who keeps on going, what's that noise or what's that, (laughs) you know, so I'm not really in the territory of feeling deaf yet. But I do feel very conscious of sound. When you all are in the studio, or do you, do you crank it up, or where are you? No, I'm not, I'm not crazy about. I mean, yeah, you know, sometimes, but yeah. but not. It, it depends. It really depends. I mean, um, I think practically speaking, yeah, it is pretty loud. But I tend to play the guitar in the studio. You know, not in another room. I tend to be sitting in front of the speakers when I'm playing. So. You need a certain kind of level, you know, to feel and be into it. You can't be hearing the strings when you're playing guitar. It has to be kind of loud enough. It sounded to me like you were busy working on something new because you said that this stuff is behind you and you're... Mm. So, yeah, you think it's real? Basically, I mean, we, we started recording a new album over a year ago. Um, and it was, it was based on a, some ideas I had. And we started to just work only in Pro Tools just to sort of see if these ideas actually work. And they kind of did. And so we, then we started to record Analog last summer, you know, I think it was. Yes, it was over a year. Well, like 14 months ago, we started the Pro Tools stuff. And then last summer, we did. All, we started recording Analog. And then we stopped again. We only really got backing track stuff done, drums and stuff. And, and then I've only really got into it. I'm only getting into it now, you know, but essentially because... I'm not making an album um, in the way I would normally make an album, which is like, a, it, it's a self-contained thing. It, it all ma- makes sense from beginning to end to me always. It's more like I'm making really an EP, but it, I don't want to be constrained by it having to be four songs or a certain length or anything. So it's really an EP, but it's a sprawling EP. That's my <laughs> way of describing it. Well, and I'm going to do that, yeah. a, a couple of them, before I do an album. You know, I just, I, I think... We're going to play live in the summer, and we're just going to kind of introduce a lot of, just start introducing new ideas, maybe just even live as well. So I just want to mix it up a bit and get and get away from my every 22 years I make an album and then tour and disappear for five years. And yeah. then, you know what I mean? We don't have many 22 years. No, no. So, so from like we were saying about the whole idea of wasting time, because it is, time is finite, you know, so... There's only that much time available, and if I'm going to spend X amount of years doing stuff that's technical, then 
it just means that that yeah that's that's gone and um these next three or four years will be focused on just doing stuff so i'm, I'm as i said this ep thing is i'm focusing on that just to get it wrapped up before we start rehearsing in june and then i'm, I'm gonna make another one i love um, that attitude <laughs> but whenever you know what i mean yeah. and then and then i'll make an album you know but i'm not but in the meantime we'll be playing live and stuff and also trying stuff out live i just want to as i said make just try and mix things up a bit and get into a more present state which i've never really been in just trying to imagine what would be new for you are you is it beyond bass drums guitar is it yeah. No, it's it's really in arrangements and the fact that I'm kind of I'm plagued by every time I, I imagine music, it, it, it does have a kind of interlocking world onto itself thing. And the way I've always done music before, it's essentially quite simple, really. And <laughs> um, and so I guess if you just imagine a song or if, uh, an easy way of doing it would be if you just took a song of Loveless, like um, Coming Alone coming along playing on two mobile phones but you delay it on one phone so it's sort of you know like an echo of itself right and it's that kind of effect where it's stuff kind of interweaving a bit more and um and meeting at certain points that's kind of the idea but again it's just some stuff i think it'll take me years to sort of work through you know and it's just something i kind of hit upon a few years ago and as i said we tried it out in, in pro tools recording backing tracks and i song ideas and then trying this idea about out of trying to then interweave them with other ideas and or delay them on top of themselves and use that as the impetus to create this effect you know it's just something I, I feel compelled to do i'm grateful for your care and the way you think about music and i look forward soon to something because <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting because people uh, like myself and others look forward to your uh, the way you approach music so thank you for doing that no thank thanks you. for listening that's for sure really a pleasure if you care to in the future want to chat about what you got coming out new mm. god knows if you'll remember any of this but i would love to do that again. yeah so thank you oh uh, sure cool right, be well listen the app is going to say do you want me to send the file i don't oh, yeah. care uh everything looks like it recorded on this end uh, yeah. if you send we'll it, do it anyway fine yeah. then yeah I get Alan to do it because he's he's technical. Okay. In a way, I'm not. <laughs> Love that. I'm, I'm, I know about all this stuff, yep. but I I you know what I mean. I've literally been using computers since they started. You know, for music and the samplers when the first the green screens. You know, yeah, I did too. Yeah, yeah, and I never nothing stuck. You know, <laughs> I just purposely I've kept a certain just. I know what it can all should do, and can do, but I don't like doing it. If you know what I mean, it's, you know, I hate it. I actually love it, I, and I love make I love making music on it. I, you know, have analog synths and I built surge modular synths, but I really love the software-based synths too. So, one last yeah. when I worked with Brian Eno, yeah, that was a big kind of a bit of an eye opener because he has a way of working with. He just has he just his studio is basically a room with four speakers and a bunch of stuff like things to play, but not no no app board or anything, and and it's a computer. And literally, it was the most organic and kind of non, it was like, it was super analog in the way, it, it was the way all the good things about analog, where it was just there and spontaneous and no messing around, no waiting, no, no wondering why, or, it was just like, it was amazing, because he, he has it all a bit like the way he created for Petronics. One thing leads into the other and things just feed off each other, so pretty much like, I literally just hit a note I'm not exaggerating, a note on the guitar, uh -huh. and that turns into a soundscape. 
<laughs> immediately. Immediately, but not like in not in two minutes. Wait, wait, wait till I press this button and do this. It's just happening, right. and that was cool. And it was just amazing. Like the the stuff I did with them, it just we did it in real time. It was just like there happening. You know, no no waiting, no messing around. Very cool. Yes. And so that was, seeing all that made me kind of go, hmm, I would love to get into that. You know, because yeah. for me, it faded away from a lot of digital stuff because of the slowness of it. Because I just grew up in it and the era was really slow and clunky and I wasn't, I was too impatient. And it's, I did spend loads of time. But all I'm saying is that I've, I've realized some people can work with digital and it's really cool. You know, really cool. So. I don't think twice about what I do and it does feel very organic. In fact, more so than when I pick up my guitar. Yeah, no, it's it was it was an eye opener. It was like wow, that's cool. I didn't. Re I think I'd, I I had fallen away from what's what's really happening. You know what I mean? There's ways of doing things that are very cool, very inspiring. So I probably will be using Pro Tools a bit more in the future. <laughs> you know. Well, thank you. All right. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Cool. All right. All right. Talk to you again tonight. Cheers. Right. Bye, -bye. Bye, bye, Kevin. Kevin Shields, talking about the new version, the all analog version of Loveless. I'm Bob Boylan from PR Music. It's all songs considered. <laughs>